What's in a name? The Australia-Indonesia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. In a new special podcast series, ASPE's Dr. David Engel and Dr. Gatra Priandita explore the Australia-Indonesia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership and the five pillars supporting it. In the coming weeks, David and Gatra will be joined by leading thinkers on Indonesia and Australia to explore the historical background and future of the partnership. In this first episode, they speak to Dewi Fortuna Anwar and Alan Ginjal about Australia-Indonesia relations, the aspirations for what the partnership could become, and the different approaches the two countries take to foreign policy. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Well, welcome everyone to this first episode of this Aspie podcast series on the Australia-Indonesia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership, which we'll call the CSP from now on. Over the coming episodes, we'll talk with others about what exactly the CSP is and its five pillars supporting economic ties, development, security, diplomatic and people-to-people elements. But the CSP did not spring forth in 2018 out of nowhere and from nothing. It's the latest iteration of a variety of instruments and waypoints in the Australia-Indonesia bilateral relationship. So it's worth spending some time looking at this historical background. Gatra and I can't think of two people more qualified to do this than our two guests today. They've been at the centre of their government's foreign policies at various times in their careers and have remained among their country's most prominent commentators on foreign affairs. And both were intimately involved in key moments in the history of Australia-Indonesia relations. I first encountered Dewi Fatuna Anwar during my first posting to Indonesia back in the late 1990s. Dewi was Assistant Minister of State, Secretariat for Foreign Affairs, and for all intents and purposes, then President Habibi's closest foreign policy advisor. She subsequently held senior positions serving Presidents Budiono and Yusuf Kala during the presidencies of Cecilio Bambanyu Duyono and Joko Widodo. Her past and current positions in Indonesia and abroad and her list of achievements and publications are too long to mention here. But inter alia, it's worth noting that she obtained her PhD back in 1990 from Monash University and knows Australia as well as any Indonesian. It's just as hard to summarise Alan Gingell's contribution to this country's foreign policy. A former diplomat, Alan had served as Paul Keating Senior International Advisor, and I doubt anyone had more influence on that Prime Minister when it came to building ties with Indonesia. Alan became the founding director of the Lowy Institute for International Policy until 2009, whereupon he rejoined government as Director General of the former Office of National Assessments until 2013. Among many other things, he is a prolific writer on all things international with an acute interest in Southeast Asia and Indonesia in particular. So welcome to both of you and many thanks for being part of the opening episode to this series. Thanks, David. Yeah, thanks, David. So to kick off the discussion, I thought it would sort of reflect back on the historical and perhaps intellectual origins of the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership, because after all, these are not just titles that either Jakarta or Canberra gives to just anyone. It's a status that reflects deep aspirations about what the relationship could become. So while Australia and Indonesia today maintain fairly good ties, the history of the relationship, particularly during Cold War, has been one of occasional turbulence. 
But really, from the late 1980s onwards, we saw considerable developments in the degree of diplomatic and security cooperation between Australia and Indonesia. The two states were closely defined solutions to Cambodia crisis. They were closely on projects of regional architecture building, such as through APEC or the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation and the ASEAN Regional Forum. And there were also major developments in the bilateral relationship. So, Alan, there was a definite shift in foreign policy thinking about Southeast Asia and Indonesia in particular, which was summed up by this quote from Paul Keating, no country is more important to Australia than Indonesia. If we fail to get this relationship right and nurture and develop it, the whole web of foreign relations is incomplete, unquote. Could you reflect back to this period and perhaps elaborate more on this shift in Australia's thinking about the region? Yeah, it is interesting to think back on that period I can't remember another incident in Australian political history where a foreign policy issue came to the fore in an internal political contest between two leaders, as it did between Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, though both from the same party. But when Keating was asked why he was challenging Hawke, one of the answers he gave was that Hawke had not paid enough attention to Indonesia. The Timor issue had already by that stage begun to cause problems in the relationship and Bob Hawke had thought it better simply to stay away from it all. But even though the massacre of civilians at the Santa Cruz Cemetery in Dili by Indonesian troops occurred just as Keating was taking over as Prime Minister of Australia, he nevertheless decided that he wanted to continue to build the relationship with Jakarta. So although there are a lot of people saying to him, look, take it quietly, boss, you don't have to do anything heroic here, he nevertheless insisted that his first overseas visit would be to Indonesia. Ibu Dewi, during this period, you had sort of the unique role of both being an active member of Indonesia's intellectual community, while also being a PhD candidate at Monash University in Melbourne. What were your thoughts at the time about this shift in Australia's attitudes towards Indonesia? At the time, I was writing about Indonesia's foreign policy and ASEAN, and there were debates whether why Indonesia needed to improve through relations with its neighbouring countries. ASEAN was a means of both domesticating Indonesia's foreign policy and also reassuring neighboring countries that Indonesia is no longer confrontative. But if one remembers, you know, throughout most of the 70s and 80s, Indonesia has really taken a very low-profile foreign policy because of these concerns about not being seen to be too assertive. But it was only after a while that there was growing confidence in Jakarta because of the success of the economic development, political stability, and so on, you know, Indonesia again began to play a more proactive role. So Indonesia, at the end of the Cold War, again took a more active interest in the non-ally movement, which had been very critical of Jakarta for because Indonesia was becoming too close to the U.S., in fact, just becoming a de facto U.S. alliance. It took a more active role in global affairs and took an active role also in supporting the Australian initiative, Gareth Evans Initiative, to develop APEC. At the time, remember the Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir wanted a more Asian, East Asian economic grouping. And Pak Harto said, you know, no, no, we do not want an exclusive economic grouping, you know, and supported, in fact, a more inclusive economic cooperation that includes 
Australia, the United States. But at the same time, this was the end of the Cold War. Indonesia's strategic importance for the United States as an important world war against communism was diminishing at the time. A lot of criticisms began to be leveled against the new order government. You know, the human rights issues, democratic issues, which were brought up by civil society activists, but not so much by policymakers in Canberra or Washington, you know, began to come to the fore, particularly after the Santa Cruz massacre. So relations with Western developed countries became quite fraught during that time. If I may, in the United States, the foreign policy priorities of the new Clinton administration, you know, included this new universal values that he wanted to promote, like democracy and human rights and so on, and cut off cooperation with the Indonesian military. Uh, training for the Indonesian military was cut off, and the selling of Wotan military hardware cut off and so on. So Indonesia is getting more high profile on the one hand, but at the same time, you know, the new order government, President Suharto himself, began to be much more hemmed in. You know, there was more harsher criticism against them. So when there was a change in Canberra from a government that was, was equally critical of Jakarta to a new administration in Canberra that tried to put a more focus on Asia and, and in fact, you know, tried to develop personal relations with President Suharto himself. And in fact, it succeeded very well. The tone of relations between Jakarta and Canberra changed, you know, dramatically. So on the one hand, you know, the relations with the United States became more difficult and also with, also with European countries uh, were more difficult. But at the same time, you know, the relations with Australia became much more friendly. And I think that this is a context that is very much, you know, that the personal relations between Paul Keating and President Zaki. And I think also that's one of the reasons why Pak Harto threw his very strong support behind APEC as opposed to behind, you know, that all Asian economic grouping. In that context, too, let's turn to the agreement on maintaining security. You're on record as saying that the AMS was entirely Paul Keating's idea and that you'd been something of a Sir Humphrey Appleby telling him the fact that it was a courageous decision. Since you were one of those who secretly negotiated the AMS, perhaps you could tell us what it was and what it was designed to do. Sure, but can I go back to the question of tone first, sure. David, because David was talking about the importance of the relationship between Suharto and Keating. That wasn't you know, known from the start. They'd never met before until Keating decided to make the first trip there. And in some ways, it was a very unlikely bond for them to form. I mean, Keating was the ultimate Australian political street fighter. And Suharto was Javanese to his bootstraps. And one of the things that was so interesting for me, sitting in on almost all the conversations they had together, was that Paul Keating was one of the few Australian politicians I've met who was quite comfortable with silence. You will have been in lots of meetings, David, with Australian politicians going through Indonesia, they were you, you too. And Australians can't stand silence and gaps in conversation and feel the need to leap in immediately with a comment or to change the subject. Keating and this much older Suharto didn't have that sort of relationship. Keating was quite happy to just sit there and wait for Suharto to go on to say something else. And I, th I think that was very important. So, look, that brings us to the agreement on maintaining security. You're right, it was a sort of Sir Humphrey Appleby moment for me. 
Keating had first started talking about the need for some agreement to his colleagues in the Security Committee of Cabinet in 1994, and he'd been met there with a decided lack of enthusiasm. Gareth Evans, who was a you know fantastic asset for Australia throughout this period, Gareth had this idea of developing with Ali Alatas, with whom he had a genuine close relationship, a joint declaration of principles. Paul didn't want that. He didn't want incremental stuff. He wanted something to happen. He couldn't understand, he said, why should Australia have security relations with Malaysia and Singapore through the Five Power Agreement and with Papua New Guinea, but with Indonesia as the black hole in the middle of this. When he started talking to staff like me about it, I said something like, well, that's really worth thinking about, but Indonesia is so committed to its deep tradition of non-alignment that, you know, I don't think we're going to get anywhere here, but nevertheless, give it a go. I certainly understood what a great thing it would be if he could bring it off, but I didn't think he could. But finally, it was Sahato himself who raised the issue of greater defence cooperation with Australia in 1994, I think. And that gave Keating the opportunity to say, hey, have I got an idea for you? Why don't I get one of my close advisors who was General Peter Gration, wonderful now late chief of the Australian Defence Force and knew Indonesia very well. And I'll get him and my foreign policy advisor, Alan Gendrel, to talk to your people. And so that's what it was about. It was about the idea of establishing trust between Indonesia and Australia during this time of really deep change in the world. And the idea that we should both be able to look outwards at the world because the things that might threaten Indonesia were the things that might threaten Australia. Keating thought in terms of defence, Sahato and the Indonesian side made it clear that they wanted to broaden this to comprehend an agreement on security more generally. And so then we set off on the complicated path of developing the treaty. Well, David, how much of a break from Indonesia's free and active foreign policy do you think it amounted to? And what value do you think Suharto saw in the agreement? Well, frankly, you know, because the discussions or the negotiations about the MS was not open to the public, I only found, you know, most of us only found about it from reading about it or, or hearing it from, you know, from, from TVRI, probably. And frankly, most of us were a bit surprised, yeah, because Indonesia is very deeply committed to its bebas and active foreign policy and just, you know, does not enter into alignment. So there were, of course, under Suharto, we, people do not really openly criticize him about his policy. This is not a time of very free media yet. But frankly, the government was actually keen to reassure the public that this is not a defense arrangement, that this is not about alignment. It's not about Indonesia entering a military alliance where we will be committed to go to war to defend Australia or Australia defending Indonesia or 
being entangled in foreign adventures. I think that's made very clear. From the Indonesian perspectives, I would say that there are at least two importance for the agreement. The first is, you know, this more is a confidence building measures to build trust with Australia, to strengthen the bilateral relation, to show that Indonesia really keen to develop a stronger target with Australia. And there's also a more practical elements to it. As I mentioned earlier, the United States imposed direct military to military sanctions against Indonesian military trainings in the United States. So Indonesian soldiers were deprived you know, of that opportunity. So having this agreement with Australia also provided Indonesia, the Indonesian military with another avenue you know, for training with Australia. And uh, frankly, our ASEAN neighbors were very surprised because Indonesia has not signed any kind of such uh, cooperation with any of the ASEAN countries. Well, even until now, you know, the only agreement that we have is with Australia. There's a framework security agreement that, that we have. So still, you know, still quite special. Curious to hear your thoughts about how fundamental you think the China factor played in, in sort of the decision to agree to the AMS. Because after all, you know, the agreement was signed within the broader context of China's growing assertiveness in the South China Sea, right? In 1993, there were revelations that China's nine-dash lines had overlapped with Indonesian waters in the Tennessee. And of course, the agreement itself was signed later in the year 1995, at the year when there were revelations that China was also occupying Mischief Reef. No, I like to reiterate, you know, the external factor is less important here, I would say. Because if you emphasize the China factor, you know, the real traditional conventional threat to security, then you're talking about conventional defense agreement, right? You're expecting that the two allies would act together jointly to deter an external threat. And that is definitely not the case. While the China factor may come into it in the sense of capacity building, rather than in a way of you know, getting an external partner to defend Indonesia, because that is really very dramatically opposed to Indonesia's DNA, you know, it's free and active foreign policy. But having said that, you know, uh, Indonesia and the rest of the region, we have enjoyed, in a way, a free ride from the presence of the US. That's never been questioned. But when it comes to taking actions together against an external threat, that is still very much against what Indonesia believes in. Probably things will change if the geopolitical terrain really changes. But I don't think that was uh, very much an issue at the time. It was very much about developing closer relations with Australia, showing you know, support for, you know, that is the greatest mark of Indonesia's liking of Australia, put it that way. But at the same time, you know, there are practical fruits, trainings and so on. David, it may be worth just going through the operative paragraphs of the agreement because it's something I'd like to come back to at the end. And they were that ministers from both countries would consult regularly about matters affecting common security and develop such cooperation as would benefit them and the region. They would consult in the case of adverse challenges to either party, that's an Indonesian phrase, or their common security interests, and if appropriate, consider measures which might be taken either individually or jointly in accordance with the processes of each. The language there, you know, gives room for lots of different things to happen, but Dewey is quite right. It's not a, you know, traditional NATO-style defence agreement. 
So the 1990s saw temporary improvement in the relationship, but things obviously quickly changed. Both Australia and Indonesia saw changes in the political leadership that was arguably fundamental to the establishment of the AMS and, and the improvement of the relationship. The relationship during this period in the late 90s was very much dominated by the crisis in East Timor. Ibu Dewi, you were at the presidential palace at the time giving advice on foreign policy to President Habibi. How did the crisis in East Timor shape perceptions of Australia, particularly within the palace? Well, Australia was really front and center on the whole of the East Timor issues. There was a lot of expectations that the East Timor situation or the East Timor question could be resolved peacefully. And, and in fact, that was, you know, that was the whole point of offering uh, East Timor the right to decide whether they wanted to remain part of Indonesia or to go its own way. But if you remember what triggered that decision, when President Habibi came to power to replace President Suharto, one of the first things that Anybody asks, what do you want to do about East Timor? What are you going to do about East Timor? And he would always say, you know, I want to resolve it peacefully. And the thinking is that, you know, if Indonesia is becoming more democratic, if the issues of democratizations and the protections and promotion of human rights are becoming central to the Indonesian project, then clearly, you know, these issues must also be brought to how to handle East Timor. East Timor can no longer be resolved through security measures alone. So the issues of Democracy and human rights need to be played up there as well. But how to go about it? In the beginning, it was, you know, the negotiations with Portugal about what sort of autonomy that East Timor could have. And the trigger for the decisions to allow this referendum is the Howard letter. Prime Minister John Howard sent a letter to President Habibi suggesting that Australia supports Indonesia, in a, one of the few countries that supported the incorporation of East Timor within Indonesia. But it suggested that, you know, Indonesia follows the French Caledonian style, you know, promising referendum in the end. And frankly, President Habibi at the time was very offended because Indonesia does not see itself as a colonial power in East Timor. You know, it sees East Timorese as being very much Indonesians, you know, no difference from the Javanese, Sundanese and, and so on. But that, that triggered a discussion, as you know, and that led to that decisions to allow self-determination. So in the minds of Indonesians at the time, you know, Australia's so the <laughs> agent provocateur, you might say, you know, the one who that triggered the decision and got very involved in the preparation to the United Nations. It was given the authority to manage the, the referendum. So everything going to the referendum, you know, was well. The international community, including Australia, was very much behind it. But unfortunately, it soured when the results of the referendum showed that, you know, the majority of the East Timorese chose independence. And then there was this violence after that from those who, who chose to be part of Indonesia. And after that, Indonesia was, in fact, under a lot of pressure to allow the peacekeeping force to go into, into East Timor. But Indonesia, President Habib is very worried at the time if the peacekeeping force will be dominated by white faces, because then, you know, it will also create a, a backlash. And President Habibi called on his ASEAN colleagues to mobilize, you know, peacekeeping forces and to ask whether Philippines or Thailand or Malaysia, you know, could have that forces. But unfortunately, at the time, there was not enough time to send and funded Blue Barrett force. So they could only deploy, you know, international peacekeeping force who must be funded initially by particular countries. And Australia is the country that was most ready at the time. Uh, so Australia took the leadership, you know, General Cosgrove led that peacekeeping force there with also quite substantial components from 
from ASEAN neighboring countries. But the reaction in Jakarta was already very, very upset. And the anger was directed to Australia. So Indonesia, to show its anger, it revoked the IMS agreement uh, unilaterally. Turning to you, Alan, you were not in government at the time of the East Timor crisis. You had left government by then to avoid, in your own words, being sent to a remote part of the world to be sanitized, unquote. <laughs> you obviously still have a lot of close links to the government. What lessons do you think Australian policymakers gained from what had happened in East Timor, including when it came to developing and sustaining a security relationship with Indonesia? One of the things we learned, we didn't fully understand it at the time, but in retrospect, it's pretty clear, is that Indonesia-Australia cooperation was actually fundamental and intrinsic to the whole of the Timor operation. Australia could not have done that if it hadn't been for Indonesia's willingness to let it happen, as Davy was just saying. And we probably couldn't have done it if it hadn't been for a long history of interaction between the Australian and the Indonesian military forces. And you just have to read Peter Cosgrove's memoirs to understand how important it was that there were people on each side who knew each other through the military in that period. So, I mean, I was always very disappointed that John Howard at first sort of raised the prospect of abrogating the treaty and then President Habibi responded. It would have been much better for everyone if it had been slipped into a bottom drawer and not talked about for a couple of years because it was really very quickly after Timor that we learned again that the sort of security issues that the treaty would have dealt with very effectively, like terrorism and people smuggling, came back very centrally into the bilateral agenda on both sides. So by the early 2000s, partly through the police forces on both sides, but also through continuing contacts, though less frequent with the military, the importance of the relationship reasserted itself again. And that's a nice introduction to the next set of issues because it does introduce the Lombok Treaty that Foreign Ministers Alexander Downer and Hassan Wiriuda signed in 2006 after all of those developments. And Dewey, the treaty remains in force to this day, unlike the other one, and has been reaffirmed in various ways over the intervening years. But when you look at it, I think as Alan was saying, it seems to be very much also a product of its times. It's much more detailed than the AMS. It covers all sorts of areas of cooperation, defence, security, counterterrorism, law enforcement, and so forth. How much was this treaty a reaction to contemporary developments that Alan has been referring to, which had moved us beyond the earlier tensions of the East Timor crisis? What did Indonesia seek to gain from the treaty, and what signals did the treaty send? If you look at it, you know, in the after of 1999, until about the tsunami, the relations between the two countries were really quite bad. Alan mentioned, you know, during this time, there were a lot of cases of people smuggling. Usually there will be corporations between Australian and Indonesian Navy. You know, the Indonesian Navy would be quite willing to stop the ships from going to the Australian waters. But during the period in early 2000s, right, the Indonesian Navy just turned a blind eye. The, the game changer, that things changed in the aftermath of the tsunami. Australia was one of the first to send help to Indonesia 
the Australian navies and military, you know, they were very, very active in helping with the uh, victims of the tsunami. And after that, what really became quite significant and really changed the perception of Jakarta during that time, you know, there was also an earthquake in Nia. There was a helicopter crash and a number of Australian soldiers who were there to give humanitarian assistance were killed. And President Yudhoyono, you know, gave an honor to them. And that was a background to the presidential visit to Australia. But as usual in our relations, you remember, uh, are, after a very successful presidential visit in, in early 2005, a number of Papuan asylum seekers went to, to Australia and were given sanctuary. And President SBY was very upset and recalled Ambassador Hamzah Taihok. But I think that both sides feel that they need to move forward. Uh, the importance of military cooperation, security cooperation, are felt. Particularly also from the Australian side, that boats coming to Australia without Indonesia doing anything to interfere, you know, it's not tenable. And for the Indonesian side, a language in the, in the agreement is neither side, neither party would intervene in each other's domestic affairs. And for Indonesia, you know, that's so that Australia would not intervene in Indonesian domestic affairs. In, it, it was considered to be intervening in the East Timor case and also continuing to interfere in the Papuan's case. And I think for the Indonesian side, that was the aspect that was highlighted in the media. Now, Alan, to reiterate, the Lombok Treaty is a very different type of instrument to the AMS, yet they're only 11 years apart. Mm. But what accounts for those differences and to what extent did the treaty itself advance what I assume was the underlying premise of both, namely a means to align more closely the national security interests of both nations? I think the funda fundamental difference between the AMS and the Lombok Treaty is that the Lombok Treaty is a far more conventional non-aggression pact. It, from Indonesia's point of view, it's much more direct in reiterating Australia's support for the territorial integrity of Indonesia. And it says, and we both agree that we're not going to attack one another. Well, I don't actually ever think that was likely to be the case. In some ways, it's always seemed to me that the central difference between the way Australia and Indonesia look at the world is that Australia sees security from the outside in and in alliance and bilateral terms. Indonesia sees security from the inside out and in multilateral terms. And so the Lombok Treaty is more that latter way of thinking about security from Indonesia's point of view. So it was more negative what we want to do rather than positive. That's, you know, fine. That's nothing wrong with that, but it's not sort of as forward looking as we might so we might hope. I just remembered the first time Indonesia's white defense paper came after Reformasi, that was during the Gustuos presidency the Minister of Defence issued a white defence paper. And in that white defence paper, Australia was mentioned as an external threat to Indonesia. That's no longer the case. In subsequent white defence papers, no countries are explicitly mentioned as threats to Indonesia. You know, they talk about more about conventional threats, non-traditional threats, etc., etc., but no country is explicitly highlighted as of immediate threat to Indonesia's security. But during that early period after the East Timor crisis, and because of the perceived role of Australia, you know, in the, the loss of East Timor for Indonesia, Australia was actually seen as the threat 
So I'm not surprised that tone or the language that was stressed in the Lombok Treaty is about respect for territorial integrity and not to intervene in, in each other's affair, you know, as on. it's more negative. So more is not what you are not allowed to do. And in fact, that was very much emphasized, you know, from the Indonesian side. So the Lombok Treaty obviously led to a period of relative optimism in Australia-Indonesia relations. There were occasional turbulences in 2013. There was the phone hack. 2015, there was also the executions of Chen and Sukumara. But, you know, political leaders from both Australia and Indonesia have continuously affirmed the high strategic value that they attach to the relationship. And of course, during his last visit to Australia, President Jokowi even said that Australia is Indonesia's closest friend. And this relationship in 2018 became a comprehensive strategic partnership. And I'm, I'm curious to hear from you, Budewi, what you think it means for Australia and Indonesia to become comprehensive strategic partners, especially given that there is growing strategic divergence, particularly over how to manage the rise of China. Yeah. Indonesia developed comprehensive strategic partnership only with very few selective countries. Australia is among them. We have also comprehensive strategic partnerships with the United States, with India and China. You know, there are not that many countries that we have that. And clearly, firstly, it is comprehensive because it covers various pillars with Australia. It's, you mentioned you know, about the five pillars, including security, economic, people-to-people, maritime cooperation, you know, that, uh, various technical cooperation, and, and so on. And, and there are so many areas of cooperation. There are hundreds and hundreds of projects. So it's extremely comprehensive. And it's strategic in the sense of its levels of importance. It's strategic that they have core values, core fundamental importance to both countries. And I think that it does mean that you are elevating Developed relations to the next level. And if you notice, you know, every time there's a dip in the relation, there are attempts to further deepen the relations. And we are talking always, you know, of the need to create greater stability and greater balance in the bilateral relations. And I would argue that this comprehensive strategic partnership also, you know, to ensure that regardless of who is in power in Jakarta or Canberra, regardless of politics, or despite of politics, you know, the bilateral relations would continue to be on even keel because there's strong balance in this relation. Look, to be brutally honest, I've never been entirely sure what comprehensive security partners or just plain security partners or anything else are. It's more a, you know, a symbol of where you want to go to. You want to be comprehensive strategic partners and so you you have an agreement on it. The CSP is much broader all-encompassing treaty, a bit like the sort of joint declaration that Gareth Evans and Dali Alatas were thinking about right at the beginning. But it's also sort of difficult to summarise because it's long and the language is sometimes incomprehensible. So again, it provides cover for a range of continuing cooperation between the countries at various different levels, various kinds of economic and strategic people-to-people cooperation and is therefore a good thing, but it's not quite as sharp an assertion of where Australia and Indonesia should be as some of us might hope for. And that goes to, I think, the two principal underlying questions in the series. What sort of strategic partners can Australia and Indonesia realistically be? And how might we take the relationship to its optimal level in this respect from this point forward? What's the future for us as as comprehensive strategic partners? 
I think that you know both sides needs to decide on first in what areas they can work to advance bilateral relations. Yeah. In the national interest of both sides, what are important for Australia? The security dimensions probably important for Indonesia too. So we had advanced very much, for example, in counterterrorism after the Bali bombing, in which the largest number of victims are Australians. Of course, you know that's also one of the trigger for higher level of relations of security cooperation between Indonesia and Australia. And Indonesia has developed much greater capacity than before to a certain extent because of Australia. The training, the JCLEC Center in Semarang, that's actually supported by Australia. So on what you call non-traditional security issues, you know, there's a lot of areas that we can cooperate on. Of course, you know, on more traditional security, Indonesia and Australia are working closely, not just bilaterally, but also within the ASEAN context, the ASEAN defense ministers meetings, plus and so on. So there are clear areas of needs from both sides, continuing to cooperate on maritime security. And of course, you know, on the development side, Indonesia and Australia are both members of ASEAN, Regional Comprehensive Economic Cooperation Partnership, and China is a major player there. And while the trade and investments between Indonesia are still not that significant, and clearly both sides have interest in strengthening their capacity as trading partners when you're faced with countries like China. So there are a lot of areas there. But at the same time, Indonesia and Australia could also look at the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership with eyes to enhancing their not just regional cooperation, but also global, global cooperation. Mm-hmm. The issues of climate change, for example, the issues of sustainable development goals, the SDGs. So why not kill two birds with one stone? So instead of separating your global compact from you know, your bilateral arrangements, why not also look at the various areas of cooperation and see where the two countries and together with regional partners within ASEAN and ASEAN Plus and various regional mechanisms, we could optimize the various opportunities and align the various programs so that you know we all worked to certain common goals, whether it's at the global level or the wider regional level. So I see many, many opportunities. At the moment, I'm not sure whether they're just ticking boxes. You know, we've got five pillars and have we done that? Have we done that? You know, but what are the ultimate objectives? What are the big pictures? bilaterally, regionally, and globally. And that's why you need to be strategic in that because resources are limited, times are limited, human resources are limited, money is limited, and as I said, time is also limited. So they need to be also equally strategic in choosing what their priorities are so that they have more leverage, more impact. I think, of course, in a sort of global environment we're moving into, there are absolute common interests that Indonesia and Australia have in the security and stability and prosperity of the region. We might not always agree on you know, the precise path to get there, but that makes it even more important to talk about it. And talking about it means lots and lots of conversations at lots and lots of different levels through politics and through officials and through military officers and through think tanks and uh, and everything else. So I think it's um, sort of inconceivable to me anyway that there is not a big agenda on which Australia and Indonesia uh, should be working. For the past, I don't know, 10, 20 years or so, there, there seems to have been a focus both in Indonesia and in Australia 
on seeing the relationship through ASEAN. And I can, you know, this issue of ASEAN centrality, I think, is now firmly established. It's the one point on which the Chinese and the Americans and Australia, you can always get them to say we agree on ASEAN centrality. That has been very important. It continues to be important. I continue to believe that ASEAN is a very vital feature of our region. But ASEAN is not all it is. And I think it is time for us to start looking bilaterally, not just with Indonesia, but with the other countries of Southeast Asia as well. I don't know if you have read through the the Australia-Japan security agreement, which was signed just a few weeks ago, but it's worth having a look at that because, in fact, the language in that is almost identical to the language that we had in the agreement in, on maintaining security all those years ago. So, look, I don't, I don't think, you know, forms and agreements and uh, pieces of paper matter nearly as much as the need for comprehensive engagement, but they certainly do help. And we have something in the Japanese agreement, I think, to uh, look at Uh, seriously. And in Anthony Albanese, we have another prime minister who made it clear through his first visit to, bilateral visit being to Jakarta, that he intends to take the relationship seriously. He clearly got on very well with President Wododo and, you know, the, the famous bicycles were a symbol, I think, of two men who come from rather similar backgrounds in their own own country. So I'm hopeful that this is a time when we can again start, say, using a bit of imagination in the relationship. I agree with Alan, you know, that more could be done, although with a lot has already been done in terms of collaboration between you know, the security in the military cooperation. They are doing exercises together. The Indonesian officers are being trained in Australia and some Australians are also being trained, you know, in Indonesian centres of excellence for example, like Lamhanas and, and Sesco and, and so on, more can, can be done in that respect. But as I've reiterated before, for Indonesia, when we talk about security and strategic issues, you know, our outlook has always been comprehensive. So there is no immediate knee-jerk reaction when it, we talk about security and strategic issues that we see guns, you know, that we see sort of defence cooperation. We see this in a more comprehensive manner. And I think when we talk about the comprehensive strategic partnership, we need to look at them very carefully, the, the five pillars, and how we can really make an impact in the various pillars. At the moment, the issues of uh, energy transition is very important. We need to really make special efforts to, to move into green energy. Both Australia and Indonesia can work together about, about digital transformation, for example. You know, there's, there's the whole spectrum uh, in the education, in the economy, as well as in the security dimension issues of cybersecurity, you know. So we, we have to be much more comprehensive in our outlook here and not just to focus on the traditional and conventional uh, military dimensions. And there are so many areas where we can complement each other. And I, I agree that, you know, uh, working through the regional architecture is very important. The Indonesia and ASEAN countries are quite doctrinal when it comes to ASEAN centrality. And, and there are concerns being expressed whether the court and the presence of AUKUS would undermine ASEAN centrality. We can argue that, you know, it doesn't have to because this is, you know, the one hand is a more 
realist, hard balancing perspectives. On the other, is more constructivist, more inclusive architecture where ASEAN will continue to be needed to be the primary regional convener. At the moment, the minilaterals are external to the region. Actually, in the AUKUS is regarded to be very much you know, problematic in the region, uh, not just because of nuclear power submarines, but it is seen to be re-emphasizing the traditional link between Canberra, London, and, and, and Washington, you know, and as if Australia is re-emphasizing that identity. So it is seen as more as an identity issue uh, here. It's not just about security, not just about facing China, but strengthening, re reiterating this, this identity. So maybe more needs to be done to re-emphasize again that you know Australia is very much also part of the region and not turning again into the more traditional connections of London, Washington you know, and Canberra only. Well, thanks very much to you both. You've been extremely generous with your time and it's been, I think, extremely informative. It's a good way of laying the foundations for what remains of this podcast series. Thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.